Okay, and uh, a very good afternoon to you all, very good evening or good morning, depending on which part of the world you're in. Uh, I know we have um, viewers and listeners uh, around the world, both uh, live and on podcast form. Uh, my name's Tony Travers. I'm Associate Dean of the School of Public Policy at the LSE, uh, and I'm uh, the chair for this afternoon's evening's event on the impact of Brexit on higher education. This is uh, an LSE event co-produced by the European Institute uh, and the School of Public Policy. And before I say uh, a few words about, first about the speakers and then about the content, uh, I should add that the event is has a hashtag, which is hashtag LSE Brexit. It's been with us for a number of years now, as indeed has Brexit. Uh, we've had a number of events and there will doubtless be more in, in the future. Um, what we're going to do is have the standard format. We all have three speakers, uh, one after the other, each speaking for seven or slightly more, slightly less, fewer minutes. Uh, and then uh, questions and answers involving me and the speakers. And then we'll open it out and you can put questions into the Q&A function. I will be monitoring those and uh, we'll... Uh, try and get a fair and balanced uh, selection. Good if you say who you are, where you come from, but you don't have to. Uh, and I will try and get a, all the questions, or as many of them as I can in the time available. We will finish at 6.30. So uh, our speakers are Dr. Beth Thompson, our panellist, I should say, Dr. Beth Thompson, who's Head of Policy and Advocacy for UK and the EU at the Wellcome Trust. Uh, second, Professor, Wen Professor Wendy Thompson, who is Vice-Chancellor of the University of London, formerly an academic at McGill and has worked in UK government uh, in the past, national and local level. And uh, last but not least, our own Professor Simon Hicks, who is Pro-Director for Research and the Harold Lasky Professor of Political Science at the, here at the LSE. So those are our panellists. They're going to speak in that order. So Beth, then Wendy, then Simon. Uh, but before they do that, I just want to say a couple of words by way of framing uh, this event. I can imagine that pretty well every professional grouping in the United Kingdom and a number in the EU, many EU countries, will be holding events at around now about the impact of Brexit on, uh, you know, chemicals industry or cheese industry. In our case... It's about, it's about higher education, certainly about the fishing and fisheries industry. So, um, but of course, higher education is our business. And I think it's fair to say that HE, particularly institutions in the UK, uh, particularly in London, have always been amazingly international. They've been able, in effect, to import and export, to trade across borders, bring people into and outside the UK, not only from the EU, and that's in a sense an important thing to remember. Um, uh, very strong links to the United States, Latin America, Australia and New Zealand, increasingly India and Africa. So it's not as if higher education isn't used to dealing with changes in rules and border issues and visas and all of that. However, this is a major change because of issues such as funding streams, uh, student exchange programs, 
research funding, research collaboration, and indeed the easy movement of students across borders and fees and a whole range of other issues. I won't go into them because we're going to hear more about this later. And I'm sure many uh, who are going to join on the Q&A or want to have points to make on the Q&A will add their own uh, thoughts. Um, the University of London and its um, sister colleges, uh, which LSE is one, uh, obviously have roots into government. They can make their own statements. They can, individuals can talk to government. But I think it's fair to say, and this is the last thing I'm going to add at the beginning, that um, government, UK government at the moment, we're just talking about the UK perhaps today, but others may want to talk about EU governments, um, that the UK government has a lot on its plate at the moment, particularly because of COVID, but also because of the structural issue that there's a very powerful desire within the UK government to make sure that people believe Brexit worked and it is not a problem. And so trying to correct and get our voice across or to get HE's voice across with all these other industries and against this complicated background, I think is you know, a really interesting uh, political challenge, which I'm sure Wendy and uh, Simon and Beth will all have thought about. Anyway, um, that's enough from me. Now, perhaps I can hand over to Dr. Beth Thompson from the Wellcome Trust. Beth, over to you. Thank you, Tony. It's great to be here with you all. Um, as Tony said, there's a number of aspects to the, EU, the UK's future relationship with the EU um, and a mixed settlement really overall if we look at research um, and student mobility as two areas with very contrasting outcomes. But so in my few minutes, I'm going to talk about the research outcome, particularly the horizon results, so the future funding programmes and how that collaboration will work, research and mobility, which is also a critical issue, how we, how we move our people across borders. Um, and then I'll touch on some issues of regulation, including data sharing and clinical trials, um, before wrapping up with some thoughts on really how we deliver this as a meaningful partnership for the future. So starting with Horizon Europe, where there is really good news for research, and I think this is testament to some of those, um, uh, the efforts that Tony talked about in terms of how universities and, and other partners like Wellcome have made the case for, for continued deep cooperation with the EU. Effectively, full UK participation in the next framework programme, Horizon Europe, has been secured. There's a small aspect of innovation funding that's not covered, but we have European Research Council and the Marie Curie Slodowska Actions. UK-based UK researchers will be able to participate in and also lead those collaborative projects. The UK will also be able to participate in the ERICS, the, the infrastructure consortia that are led from the EU. And the, the UK can have more or less a full role in the governance processes associated with Horizon Europe. So that's the programme committees, but also participating in the European Research Area Committee and its subgroups. In that governance, the UK will lose its voting rights, but actually the, observe, the status of observer in those, in those groups is, is very meaningful. Issues rarely come to a vote and therefore the UK is really there, has that same seat at the table um, as it has done in the past. It's quite unique, I think, that the, the EU has created a system of funding schemes through the Horizon programme where non-EU member states can participate almost to the same extent as a member state. And that's really what's happened here. 
should say this is all subject to the Horizon Europe legislation being finalised. So that regulation is currently going through the last stages of its process in Brussels. Um, so this is all based on a draft protocol between the UK and the EU. That does need to be finalised and we're expecting that over the first few months of this year. But it's really a formality rather than anything more significant. Now, of course, this doesn't come for free. The UK has made a decision to participate in this way. And um, certainly from Wellcome's perspective, but across the research community, we see that as a huge positive. Um, but we do have to pay for it. And this has really been the big complexity in the negotiations was how to work out um, a proportionate participation fee for the UK, both in terms of the amount of money that it would bring back in terms of grants, but also the admin costs and how um, uh, how that would how how that would be done in a way that meant sure there weren't big as big winners or losers on either side if the UK success rate went dramatically up or down. I think we've landed on a solution that's based on a, a con, uh, the UK's GDP, and there are safeguards in there. So if the UK success rate goes up, usually the EU is protected, and vice versa. If the if the UK success rate goes down, uh, the the UK is is protected. So those costs aren't open-ended, there are some buffers there, um, but I think the simple um, kind of summary of all of this is that the stronger UK participation is across the Horizon Europe programme, the better value for money it becomes as a UK investment. And we know the UK has made the, the policy choice now to participate in this, but I think that's really important that we demonstrate that value as a research community uh, as time goes on. And of course, one way to make that happen is going to be through the movement of researchers. So none of this will happen, none of it will work well unless researchers can move across boundaries and we get that flow of people and ideas that's so important to make research work. Mobility is covered in the deal. Um, there's a reciprocal agreement that facilitates mobility of researchers involved in the programmes. Um, as you might expect, in a treaty of this level, the language is quite woolly. Um, so it talks about the UK and the EU making every effort within the framework of their domestic laws. Doubly complicated, of course, on the EU side um, by immigration being uh, a member state competence. But the intent is there. And I think that is really important. In the UK, largely, this is going to be implemented through the global talent visa. Um, and, and I think it's, it's helpful that, that that policy and that position was in place um, to show that the UK could really deliver this. Um, it's going to be important that as a community, we keep talking to government about how to make that visa work as well as possible for our community. Briefly on regulation, because... Although as a sector, we're used to working collaboratively as possible, there are, there are some laws um, that are there to protect either the individuals, uh, for example, who are participants in the work um, or uh, for privacy reasons. Um, it doesn't affect all researchers, but for some and particularly um, in Wellcome's area of interest in the life sciences, uh, health, uh, the, the sharing of health data um, and clinical trial legislation is all wrapped up in this. So we might want to come on later in the discussion to talk more about uh, the potential adequacy decision. But the, the way to ensure freest flow of, of personal data where that's used in research is going to be through 
uh, a unilateral EU decision. And we're still waiting on that. But at least we've got an extension of, of the transition arrangements there while we wait to see what that looks like. Um, but I think a really interesting question for research, if there, if there isn't an overall adequacy decision to make this really seamless, is, is there something we could do in a sector specific way? Um, there will be some, some additional burdens for things like um, clinical trials, but I think actually the really interesting thing is the policy choice facing the UK when it comes to these big re regulatory issues. Does the UK retain regulatory harmonisation effectively or do we choose divergence? Of course, that's not unique to research. It's a, it's a huge question that the UK government will be grappling with, but it will have bearings on our sector as it, as it will for trade in other areas. So what next? We've got a horizon agreement that sets the basis for continued collaboration, almost the same as member states. So we've got the individual awards, we've got the collaborative awards. So there's a real opportunity to be seized and for that strong UK participation to create the value for money. But it's not just about the money. And I think that's so important that making the most of this opportunity will mean the UK becoming a really active participant on things like the programme committees, the government stepping up and taking part in um, IRAC, the European Research Area Committee, as a really active member, because that will shape the overall environment that we're working in. But also, it's not just about the immigration rules. It's about the UK being a welcoming place to come and to be a researcher. And that is about tone not just policy and it's about the type of country that the UK is seen to be and that's the point that I want to end on is I think there is a moment here uh, as we move into this new world for the for the UK to create a clear vision for what it thinks the UK's place in the world is as a as a research research rich country and and for me and for Welcome, that should be about generous collaborative leadership on some of the big challenges that face us, like antimicrobial resistance and climate change, that, that research really have to be at the heart of solving. And I think Tony already made this point, EU and rest of world collaboration are not mutually exclusive. They actually facilitate each other. So I think we have to look at... Uh, the way that we're working with the EU as a bridge to the rest of the world, how we're working with other countries and look at the trade deals and opportunities that will help us demonstrate that, that generous collaborative leadership that will strengthen our research base here. Okay, thank you very much, Beth. Just before I move on to Wendy, just given you hinted it at the end there, the fact that the, um, the January the 1st and the 24 days thereafter have coincided with uh, a big debate about the rollout of vaccine and given Welcome's interest, historic and current interest in this issue. Is there any, are there any early signs, sort of optimistic, pessimistic, or that, that in a sort of, I mean, you, you would have thought, common sense would suggest that this is a, an all-embracing, all-affecting pandemic, and therefore it should be a spur to rational behaviour. Is there any evidence either way so far? There's a lot to unpick in what you've just said, Tony. Sorry, all right. <laughs> Let me just, I'll, I'll focus on one bit in particular about this question of vaccine nationalism, as it's sometimes called. I, I think this is a real area where the UK can show its leadership. Um, we know nowhere in the world is safe until everywhere is safe. So there are good rational reasons to make sure that we deliver vaccines to, to countries that can't afford them as readily as we can, as well as good moral and ethical reasons to do that. I think um, 
I mean, I have some hope with the state of politics in the world now that the world is in a better place to be able um, to avoid that vaccine nationalism. And I think there's no doubt it's in the UK's interest. And it's as the the UK taking on the G7 presidency, um, there is a moment here for the UK to stand up and and be counted on this. Okay, that's a very... um further optimistic, helpful uh, and elegant reference to the American election as well, besides, I think. So thank you for that. Um, uh, Straight across, and we'll come back to you soon, obviously, uh, Beth. Uh, Now, Wendy, uh, over to you as our second contributor. Thanks. Uh, I'm going to try and share a screen. I'll see how successfully I manage to do that. Perhaps I will. Uh, there we are. I guess it's a good, um, have I managed to do that? Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Nice picture okay. of London in the old days. Okay. This won't, uh, I won't dwell on the slides very long, but I think, you know, this idea of global uh, Britain and the EU uh, relationship, big changes, it certainly, you know, just when you just think what's happened over the, the the past decades, it's just a huge shift that we're we're going to be experiencing. And I think when you think how um, the higher education sector was probably largely seen as um, pro-European during that whole debate, that we need to uh, I think reposition ourselves to sort of try and take what opportunities there are from sort of global uh, global Britain. So if I um, try and uh, move this forward. Um, just a reminder, really, that uh, we should have somehow been rather more prominent, I think, in the trade negotiations, perhaps, than uh, than it feels we have. I mean, you know, wry comments have been made about fisheries, uh, but you could make more serious ones about financial services. Um, you know, if these figures were just published uh, before uh, Christmas about the uh, you know the rep- the way that education represents a very significant and growing part of our balance of trade. You know this these simple slides here show that the revenue uh, from education related exports and TNE activity increased to 23 billion in 2018, and that was you know a significant increase from 2010, 46 over 46 percent. So, you know, a significant and important uh, growing part of, uh, uh, of, of our balance of trade. If you look at it too, um, HE represents, a, you know, the majority, 69% of the total revenue of education exports. Now, I'm not going to go into these numbers in any sort of detail, but I think it does um, show you that, uh, you know, we ought to manage to make ourselves rather more prominent in the, um, in the debate uh, of the European um, uh, you know, on the European trade negotiations than we have done. I'm going to try, I'm not, I'm not very good at this. So I'm going to try and now get us, get this off the screen if I can. But I'm not sure I can. <laughs> there we are. Unscreen, thank you. So, you know, they, this is just to sort of put in context, really, that we have every reason to feel that we're an important part of the, of, you know, of, uh, of the global Britain kind of uh, uh trade and um and influencing uh you know agenda if you like and that somehow we've got i think reflect on how we didn't manage to make ourselves more prominent in those negotiations uh than, than we did i mean it's a i don't have an answer to that but it's one i think we need to find uh if we want to influence the next stage forward 
I'm going to speak just briefly about uh, about students, really, primarily. Um, one, transnational education more generally um, is something that the University of London has been doing uh, for many years. Uh, we started in the 19th century and uh, it's changed and moved uh, in different ways, obviously, as uh, technology and, you know, migration mobility has 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 changed. Um the good news, I guess, in some of the mo- some of the stories around uh, around the trade agreements, is that transnational education, as far as distance education goes, is one I think we can feel reasonably confident is going to continue uh, as it has. Um, I don't uh, think necessarily. I mean, it's, the proximity is probably meant that students have been willing to come from Europe to the UK. But if the obstacles to that are increasing, it might be that we need to consider, you know, whether um, in-country study is something that should be a more important part of our offer and relationship to Europe, Europe and to European students. And if we put it into context, uh, there's really only about 2% of students who uh, study um, higher education outside their own country travel. You know, uh, most are going to study in country and most are going to uh, study through increasingly, I think, through the sort of online and uh, distance education uh, opportunities. I mean, we'll be watching it, uh, obviously, very closely because, you know, we've got about 50,000 students in about 180 countries. Some of them are LSE students uh, that we share and as well as our other member institutions. But, you know, so far, it looks like existing provision is going to be uh, able to continue as it has done in the past. So, you know, that's, that's at least one bridge on which uh, we want to continue to uh, to build and see the opportunities. That's the good news, I guess. Then we move on to Erasmus. Uh, and uh, I think it was disappointing. Most people were disappointed to hear that the Erasmus Plus scheme wasn't uh, going to be uh, continued for the UK. And you'd be forgiven for being uh, disappointed, given that uh, just about a year ago, the Prime Minister, in response to a PM question, uh, when he was asked um, about the continued participation of the UK in the Erasmus scheme, is quoted as saying, there is no threat to the Erasmus scheme. We will continue to participate. Uh, that was the prime minister a year ago. Now, you know, we're not uh, unfamiliar with uh, changes of mind uh, in recent months. Uh, uh, we've become accustomed to it. But nevertheless, you know, it looked like we were on reasonably solid uh, ground. Uh, but I guess it's not entirely surprising if you look at it, you know, in the harsh light of the kind of uh, you know, UK uh, perspective uh, that has been, you know, overridingly important in the Brexit uh, agenda and campaign. When you think about really that in the last five years, twice the number of EU students participated in Erasmus coming into the UK than uh, UK students choosing to study uh, in, in the UK. So, you know, there has been um, a tendency for, you know, to us to import rather than export uh, students in that program. Um, and, you know, if you look at the numbers, we still get really rather more students, uh, more people studying from outside Europe as, you know, as much as in Europe uh, on these figures. I guess as well, if you look at the, you know, the, the wealth of the students from the EU who tend to come uh, to the UK, you know, if, and compare them to the people who would come, students who might come from uh, the rest of the world, um, you know, it's it's reasonable to gain to think that there might be a, a reason to be... Uh, you know, hoping that our students would um, be, you know, looking at the rest of the world as much as to Europe. Uh, and also, I guess, hoping 
that this is hope over reality, that perhaps the scheme might become more recipro reciprocal than it is currently, because I think that's one of the big critiques of the of the uh, of the replacement for Erasmus Plus, which is called Turing. Um, that you know that it's at this point doesn't appear to be uh, to be reciprocal. So in a sense, you know, given the government's agenda, it's not entirely uh, perhaps surprising uh, that they want to focus on uh, our stu UK students and, and their travels rather than the other way around. But I think that will be a huge blow to, um, to a, a lot of uh, UK universities who have really welcomed European students here and, uh, you know, who, 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 for whom they make up a, a good and a diverse uh, campus experience uh, that, that will be missed if, 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 if the obstacles to studying here um, are as we see them now. So there's a number of critiques of Turing, you know, uh, as I've hinted at, it's, it's not reciprocal, that's a, a major problem. Um, it's, some people compare the amount of money that uh, is currently being spent on Erasmus Plus and feel that uh, the Turing uh, amount, although it sounds good at 100 million, for 35,000 students, when you start uh, doing the maths, it's not really uh, as generous as it might look on first uh, look. And the Erasmus scheme was, uh, I guess, um, further subsidized by travel and student subsistence through other European development programs, which you know represent a very big um, uh, contribution to helping students travel and studying abroad. Um, I guess there's also a question around tuition fees. If that, uh, I don't think it's been clarified yet whether or not tuition fees will be covered in the Turing scheme. And, you know, that's a huge uh, issue, uh, greater in some countries than others, but uh, uh, important uh, given that the rates for international students are quite often much higher than they are uh, for domestic students. Um, there's also all sorts of questions about, you know, mutual recognition of credits and uh, professional qualifications. Um, you know, how that's all going to be uh, sorted out uh, is still, I guess, uh, to, to be seen. Uh, I'm, I mean, I, uh, uh, some, I couldn't uh, let this moment pass without at least mentioning also language programs. We've got, a, uh, you know, the Institute of Modern uh, Language Research uh, at the School of Advanced Study at the UofL. I mean, that's going to be uh, a big obstacle uh, to, to the movement of people that uh, they've enjoyed up to now. But I guess finally, what I would say is that the infrastructure building these sorts of exchange programs is massive. You know, I mean, I know when I was in Canada at McGill and we had, you know, hopes of, uh, you know, having students travel, we sometimes pulled it off. But I mean, we're talking about handfuls of people and bespoke programs, which was just massive amounts of work um, and cost, really, that, uh, uh, you know, we were starting from scratch. Most of the universities in the UK uh, haven't got that infrastructure. Um, and there's also the membership of European university projects, which many universities have benefited from, which again, you know, we look at something like Circle U, which Kings, uh, one of our members was fortunate to, to join in uh, or just before uh, this agreement. You know, those sort of things are going to be um, a big loss. However, that's, you know, always the, you know, I think we have to look for the, uh, for the positives, you know, because the, we, are, we have Turing, we could have had nothing, you know, so how can we make the best of it? I think there's been a there was an article in Wonky recently by uh, Louise Nickel who runs the Asia Careers Group and she suggested a sort of research agenda, you know, that would place us in uh, a stronger position when we come to argue for this uh, 
kind of program again. Um, and I, you know, I think it's worth a look about, you know, the data we didn't have this time uh, and the arguments we couldn't make about the uh, advantage to graduate outcomes um, and general um, benefits uh, economically as well as socially that could come from a program uh, that was, you know, reciprocal and, and better funded than initially Turing looks to be. So, you know, that's something we, we you know, we're, that's our specialty research. Uh, let's, let's position ourselves to make a strong case for it. And I guess finally, I would say, you know, there will be little opportunities that, you know, we can, we need to make the most of. And we've got an institute in Paris, for example, that's, you know, already some of our member institutions offer UK uh, degrees uh, out of the Paris Institute. You know, we can do more of that. We've got study abroad programs based in Paris that a number of our member institutions uh, make use of. Um, these are small opportunities, but, you know, we start, start where we can and build on what we have. Uh, and, and I think that would be the way that I suggest we go forward. I mean, finally, I just, you know, really, um, I mean, I, I think I jokingly said was we were preparing for this talk. You know, I, I came to Europe to avoid sort of what was in a, a nationalist phase in Quebec. And I'd only been here a few months when, you know, when Britain decided to leave Europe. Been a bit of a personal disappointment, I would say, but um, I live in hope that uh, you know the kind of uh, way that Beth ended her talk that we you know we we are continuing to be seen as a as a, a welcoming environment. You know, I mean, I came here to study as a, as a doctoral student. You know, it was the place to go. I could have gone anywhere in the U.S., but the U.K. looked to me like the place to be. I think we need to continue to promote ourselves and feel confident. That, you know, because I continue to believe that's the case. Anyway, I'll leave that. That's the student perspective and uh, happy to participate in the questions, Tony. Okay, Wendy, thanks a lot. I mean, just to, as I, as I did with Beth slightly, just to ask you a kind of uh, an immediate question. You sort of hinted at it at the end there. Given that, I mean, I know the war will never be over, as it were, but in a sense, uh, you know, January the 1st was at least the end of the beginning of it all. Uh, and something very new. No, no, you know, there's no question of the UK immediately rejoining the EU. That's over. So I suppose, given your experience both in the academic world and in government, national government, do you think that there's now a space for policymakers to be encouraged to begin to think of creating, recreating links that may have been lost? Because there's no, no longer can it be seen as part of not leaving the EU, if you see what I mean. It's now done. So does it just make it easier to start, you know, for people of goodwill to meet politicians of goodwill to begin to make post-Brexit new policy? Thanks, Tony. Well, I guess I was trying to hint at that in terms of, uh, you know, we've got to get over this mourning period uh, that some of us have perhaps been in for some time, because uh, that's not going to fly at all within, in government circles. I mean, and, and really global Britain, I mean, what's not to like about that? You know, I mean, we're, you know, I mean, we're, we're international. We've got, you know, we've got, say, 50,000 students, 190 countries. We are international and we want to continue to be. When you think of uh, the issues facing the world, they are global. They aren't uh, just focused within Europe. So I think we are well placed to embrace this agenda and really, you know, positively uh, remind and advance to government uh, the importance that universities bring to it. I mean, you know, the soft power agenda, you know, you know, you could go on as we as we sometimes do, but I think we need to really uh, position ourselves, you know, it's, as I mean, we at the University of London want to be the largest exporter of UK uh, 
distance education. You know, we can do that. But if if the government wants that to happen, it's going to we're going to have to work together on it because uh, you know it won't happen by itself. And I think there are a whole series of those agendas which we can uh, you know very positively promote to government and and sound. Um, more sympathetic to what they're trying to achieve than perhaps we've sometimes sounded in the past. I mean, the research agenda is also huge. I mean, you know, and I, I'm Beth's well covered that. I mean, you know, UK research is global and, uh, you know, should continue to be. Okay. And I think it's fair to say a large number of institutions, notwithstanding Brexit and all the reasons for it, we're already, and this is certainly true at the LSE, and I'm sure Simon will talk about this, um, beginning to set up institutes to study and to work with colleagues in Africa and South Asia and East Asia. And so in a sense, um, you know, it's possible to do more than one thing at once, I suspect, and you know, still to be part of a European family of researchers and academics whilst actually embracing others besides. Anyway, Simon, over to you, Professor Simon Hicks from the LSE. Thank you, Tony. Um, you know, building directly on Beth and Wendy's comments there, the way I think about this is um, Britain is, you know, 80% services sector. Uh, our largest services sector is the financial services and related industries. Our second largest sector is creative industries writ large, which I think would include higher education in that. So, you know, film, fashion, art, design, media, and higher education. That's Together, those two big sectors are the two largest sectors of our economy. They're both globally competitive sectors. And even within the creative industries, higher education is particularly globally competitive. So, I mean, it's in a sense, this idea of us either Europe or the globe. And, you know, we had this argument within some higher education institutions about what should be the strategy of British universities with Brexit. And some universities were saying it has to be Europe, Europe, Europe. And others were saying, no. Actually, there's no contradiction or conflict necessarily between being pro-European and being pro-global, in fact. And I think a place like LIC, we definitely see it like that. We see we see that our European connections, our European alliances are part of a, a global strategy. It's not a choice about whether we are European or global. We want us to be both. And so I think there are some challenges, and I'm, I'm going to go through some of them from my perspective. And I'm talking here as pro-director of um, research at LSE, but also from the perspective of being on the EU advisory group for the Russell Group, which I've sat on for the last couple of years. So I've been involved in some of the debates internally that um, shaping Russell Group positions. Also, I've been involved in helping to set up one of the European University Initiative alliances that Wendy alluded to, Civica. Uh, Civica is the alliance that LSE joined and has set up, and we are very concerned about its future, which I'll come back to. So um, I'm going to talk about four areas, uh, student composition, uh, research funding, faculty recruitment and retention, and then the European University Initiative Alliances. Starting with student composition from LSE, we're a very unique university in the UK. We are the most international of all of the major universities in the UK. About a third of our students are UK students. About a third are from the rest of the e of Europe. So, you know, the other EU 27 plus other European countries and about a third from the rest of the world, mainly from North America and East Asia. And so that composition we've had for quite a while. We are worried about that composition changing over time. Um, and it, it's... The way I think of it is what we're worried about, for example, is if from next academic year um, we have to charge all of our continental European students high fees, and that would really that could really have a detrimental effect on our undergraduate recruitment of continental European students. If you think that 
this will be going from 9,000 or just over 9,000 pounds a year to 22,500 pounds a year is our, as our overseas undergraduate fee. It's a lot of money to pay, of course, to come and study at a place like LSE. We think our education is worth it, of course, but the differential between that uh, really could put off a lot of continental European students. And I do worry about us losing continental European students in our undergraduate body. Those North Americans and those East Asians are coming to a place like LSE because we are international, because we have this mix. They don't want to come to a place like LSE and just be sitting in classrooms with just other North American and East Asian students. They want this to be an international environment they come to. So this actually only affects us though at the undergraduate level. About half of our students are postgraduate students. The differential in fees is not huge there. So although we are worried about this, it isn't it might not have such a big impact after all than, than some people were sort of claiming. Um, I'll come back to this because it does relate a little bit to where we're heading with our European University Initiative and what happens then with the Turing scheme and whether or not the Turing scheme, whether a new version of Erasmus or some element of Europe, a European pillar within Turing um, could develop. We still don't know what the strategy is of the government. I think a lot of British universities would be interested in developing a European element of the Turing scheme. And I don't see any contradiction between having Turing scheme as a global scheme and having a European part within that that allows students to, to, to have exchanges sort of a bit like the Erasmus exchanges. When it comes to research funding, as uh, Beth and Wendy have both alluded to, I, it is very positive that I think we're going to associate to Horizon uh, Europe. And uh, it's particularly important for a place like LSE for the European Research Council grants, the ERC grants, that are the individual scholar grants. They're very important for the social sciences, for us to be able to attract and keep global talent in economics, in political science, in sociology, and so on. And we were very worried about losing that and this being replaced by a British government scheme that would be geared much more towards STEM subjects, that would be geared much more towards industrial strategy type interests, rather than just funding research excellence. So very happy for this to, we're delighted that's going to carry on. Um, but equally alongside that, it might be interesting that the British government is still thinking about possibly its own version of it as a slimmed down that they, they called the, the UK Discovery Fund. The UK Discovery Fund was, I think, quite a clever strategy of um, UKRI, what they did was they came up with what would the potential alternative be if we did leave Horizon Europe um, to, in a sense, you know, show to the to the EU that the UK, if we did go in alone, we would have a scheme that would compete directly with Horizon Europe. And that was a little bit scary, I think, for Brussels and for Paris and for Berlin and other places, because because the UK is a big global player in higher education and in in global research. And they didn't want it to be a competition between the EU and the funding of research versus the UK and the funding of research. I don't think that would have been healthy for either side. And I am glad that we've come to, to, to a solution on that. And I think that's going to be very positive for us moving forward. Another area I find more difficult to know where we're heading on is in faculty recruitment and retention. Um, about 40% of our faculty at the LSC are continental Europeans, so from the EU 27 member states mainly. Um, we have not seen, if you like, a dash for the door, a sort of, you know, a, a, a mass exit from LSE with these continental Europeans. But we are seeing people thinking, well, actually, maybe it's time for me to move my family back to Europe to start actively looking for jobs on the continent. And at the same time, continental European universities are upping their game. They're seeing Brexit as an opportunity to attract 
talented faculty back from the UK. So, you know, in the social sciences, we see that with places like Sciences Po in Paris or Bocconi in, in Italy or Stockholm School of Economics or, you know, other great European, uh, Pampeo Fabra in Spain. You know, these are very good, or equally also global universities. Um, and they're seeing Brexit as potentially an opportunity to teach more courses in English to attract students who might go, might have gone to the UK to attract faculty to come uh, back to those universities. I am, I think this is very difficult to predict. I think uh, Beth alluded to the fact that this is perhaps less about policy and more about feel and, and the culture in the UK and where, how it feels to be a continental European academic in the UK. Is it a place you want to carry on raising your family? Is it a place that's opening, that's open and welcome? And I, and I think, you know, the, the jury's still out on that, I think, in terms of where the UK is heading. Um, there's other elements of it that make it difficult for us to compete. If you think that Brexit actually is going to have a major hit on public finances in the UK, that could in turn have a major hit on public expenditure in universities. And that public expenditure in universities could be geared much more towards STEM subjects than shape subjects of social science, humanities, arts. Um, equally, uh, we've seen the government talking about skills, reskilling, uh, changing the way or the criteria for higher education, perhaps two year degrees and so on. I mean, if higher education in the UK gets pushed down towards a much more instrumental business oriented skills type agenda, two year type degree programs, I really think that's potentially very dangerous for higher education in the UK. And I think that could actually reduce our competitiveness globally and reduce our ability to hold on to, to a lot of continental European talent who will think, well, now it's time for me to move and time for me to leave. Um, and I think here we should be working with other services sectors. This is not just about higher education. This is about other services sectors. Uh, Beth, I think, mentioned the global talent visa. I actually think a conversation needs to be started about potentially an EU-UK blue card scheme, which was actually on the cards back in 20, late 2016, early 2017. The discussion potentially of, yes, we don't want complete free movement of, of labour um, as, as it was with EU membership, but potentially we can have some sort of visa scheme that's a joint UK-EU visa scheme you could apply to that allows you to have free movement for fixed periods, a bit like the US green card scheme. Um, for, for global talent. I think a lot of the services sectors in the UK would find this very attractive. If you think about film, fashion, design, media, financial services, law, I can think a lot of the services sectors in the UK would find this very attractive because they are very reliant on, on that talent pool. Part of it's a global talent pool, but a lot of it is actually a European talent pool that we've been used to. And I think it, we, we benefit from that. So let me finish off then talking a little bit about the European University Initiative. So this was a, an initiative that Macron set up, that the Commission ran with, that set up these European alliances. We were one of eight British universities that entered one of these alliances. So the eight are the LSE, Essex, Edinburgh, UEA, Oxford, King's, Birmingham and Warwick. So, you know, that's a lot of some of our best universities in the UK, part of these schemes. We joined Civica. So if you just get on the internet and put in civica.eu, you'll come up to the website. Civica is an alliance of LSE, Sciences Po, Herty School in Berlin, Bocconi, um, Stockholm School of Economics, Central European University, the EUI in Florence, and NSSPR in Bucharest. Um, in a sense, these are all our natural peers institutions in Europe. Um, we did this for several reasons. We did it, we joined this alliance partly because we wanted to demonstrate to our students and our faculty that we can carry on being a European university as well as being a global university. 
and also for instrumental reasons. We thought this could allow us to carry on with continental European students in our classrooms if we develop these exchange programs within the European University Initiatives Alliance. So the jury's still out about whether we can carry on in this. What I'm hoping is, you know, at the end of the pilot phase, which finishes in September 2022, there may be perhaps a bespoke agreement that allows us to at least carry on as associate members of these alliances, because we've invested a lot of time, a lot of resources in this, as have the other British universities in these alliances. Erasmus Plus, we, we cannot carry on in, but I think I'm optimistic we'll find some way for us to carry on in, in these alliances. And I hope that could be through Turing, it could be through some other bespoke arrangement. So overall, I think there will be some impacts and I, it won't be the disaster that some people are claiming it is for higher education. We are a highly competitive, globally oriented sector already. We will carry on being a world leading competitive sector, and it, but it will depend much more, I think, on what the policies of the British government are towards higher education going forward, um, as much as it depends on actually the terms of whatever the Brexit deal is. And, and that's, I think, where we should start to think about how we coordinate with other, other services sectors beyond higher education. Thanks. Okay, Simon, thanks. And in, in slightly related to where, you, where you've ended and where Wendy uh, ended as well, and best referred indirectly to the same issue. I mean, and the question of how far... Um, as I was saying earlier, now, in a sense, the intense war about Brexit and what it would look like, and the early stage, at least, is over. Um, how would UK institutions best approach the UK government, which, frankly, at the moment doesn't have much bandwidth for anything, to convince them that it was in its best interest to be a little bit more thoughtful looking forward about sectors like HE and the creative sector that you also referred to, which frankly got virtually no look in at all from the, you know, the angst at the end of the, uh, what you used to call rightly a thin trade deal that was finally signed. Yeah. I, 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 there's the politics of the Brexit deal. And I always thought we'd come up, we'd end up with a very basic bare bones, goods oriented trade deal, which, you know, I take no joy in predicting what we ended up with. Um, but I always thought that would just be the beginning of the next stage. And after that initial, you know, politics of chest thumping Brexit deal gets done, then we can really start the serious work about thinking about what types of bridges do we want to build back for, for our mutual interests. Our, and, you know, we need to identify areas where we benefit in the UK from a change, plus so does continental Europe, so does the EU. And, and if you can articulate that, to, look, this is in our interest or our sector's interest in the UK, and it's also in the interests of the EU. So here's clearly something where we can build back a particular bridge. So the EU originally said no cherry picking um, in the original deal. But now the deal's done. It's all going to be all about cherry picking. It's, it's going to be about the extra little bells and whistles, the little bridges that we add on, a bit like the Swiss have done. And so I think there's plenty of opportunity here, sector by sector by sector, for us to think about what really do we need for our sector to allow us to remain globally competitive and get the most out of our relationship with, with, with the EU? And where can we actually persuade the EU that is also in the EU's interest? I think, I think that, that's how I would suggest that we think going forward. And, and given that you understand the kind of corporate psychology of both the UK and the EU uh, government machines, 
with something like the blue card scheme, which you just outlined yourself. And we just, you just sort of say there's a sort of 50% chance that such a thing could come about within five years or a 90% or a 12%. I mean, what, 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 if you're a weather forecaster, where would you put your percentage for that one? No idea, Tony. I mean, you know, I, there's lots of things that could or could not happen. A lot of it depends on the politics on either side that's really unpredictable. I mean, Brexit is sort of done and dusted. Not, not only is there no bandwidth on the UK side, there's almost no bandwidth on the EU side either. Uh, so, so it's really hard to predict. I, I do think this is one area where it is possible, you know, everybody will say, rather than doing these global talent visa things that could end up being incredibly bureaucratic, despite the fact that they'll try and make them as light touch as possible, um, there would be a possibility of, can we coordinate this? No one's going to argue about, say, giving an academic a five-year or a 10-year blue card visa that allows them to live and work anywhere in the on the continent or in the UK. Once they've been granted that visa, are people really going to argue about that? I doubt it. That's not what the debate about immigration was about. It wasn't about high skilled workers in higher education or, or the creative industries or financial services. OK, well, great. With that in mind, and this could be to Wendy or Beth as well. I'm going to move on to some of the questions here in that are coming in. Um, there's a question from Henry Kochi, who is an LSE alumnus. Now, there's a question, can you please elaborate on Brexit's impact on EU academics looking for work in the UK? We just sort of touched against that. How will EU mobility of academics change? And I suppose the question I was thinking about when you were talking, Simon, and also Wendy, is that, um, that given the new rules, uh, why would academics have any greater problem than American academics used to have, if you see what I mean? or indeed Canadian academics, or any, any other country where there was, why would it be any different than it was for them? I mean, I'm, I'm happy to go first, Wendy. Oh. But, I mean, we've, we've got a lot of adverts out now for recruitment for next academic year, and offers are being made, and we have our visa unit at LSE that's sorting this out. And the way I think of it is, it's slightly harder for EU academics than it was before, but not much, and it's slightly easier for academics from the rest of the world but not much. Okay. In a sense, it's it, higher education has always managed to work around these rules, you know. And I'm very actually, I do think that the the current visa regime for the UK for non UK for hiring and recruiting non UK academic faculty is pretty open, pretty liberal, and pretty light touch, and that has not changed. And I think that's a positive thing. I don't Wait, know if Wendy and Beth agree with that. Wendy, you presumably have travelled backwards and forwards on. Or you may have passports in both countries, in fact. But anyway, I mean, what, 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 what do you think? What does the university, does the university have a view on this? I don't think the university probably has a view. I do think, though, that, you know, we have a lot of confidence in our ability to um, make these rules work. It's just about the disproportionate effort involved and the fact that, you know, you may be suppressing appetite for movement before it is expressed. And that's always a danger when this kind of thing happens. Um, but hey, you're talking to someone who um, had to import academics to, to McGill, where uh, we had French as the only official language, which came as quite a shock to some of them. So, so that that was a bit that was a bit tougher um, than than some of these rules, I'd say. But even still, we managed to do it. So I, you know, I'm sure we can. I think the thing is 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 the messaging about being open and available, being a welcoming place to to work, you know, a place that is going to uh, facilitate open collaborations. I think that's really the key. And I mean, I do maybe I just pick up this 
other question, I mean, from my time sort of in government, you know, the bandwidth in government is is incredibly thin, as, as everyone has mentioned. Uh, COVID's not going to be over anytime soon. And we've seen that, you know, there's a huge a range of uh, things still to be determined under the Brexit agreements, you know, the whole service sector, as well as uh, everything else that's already in there. So, you know, I think what, what I would, I think we need to sort of see if we can be trusted enough to take on some of these challenges, work alongside government and come up with, you know, kind of clever schemes of the kind uh, that Simon's mentioned, but there'll be others like that, uh, that will be in the interest of, you know, global Britain. And, uh, but also which nobody there has the time to figure out. And I think also probably, you know, anything that looks a bit pro HE at the minute within government is probably career limiting. I, I hope that wouldn't be true, but I fear it might be. So, <laughs> so overall, you know, um, Somehow we need to find a way of sidling up to these uh, to the to these settlement agreements and see how we can begin to open up the box and start figuring out how some of these issues can be solved. We've got the talent. I mean, we've got it sitting in this room, but it's right across uh, the the uh, HE sector. And presumably, departments like the Treasury and the Business Department privately will need no convincing of any of this. It's a it's a kind of a matter of empowering the positive parts of government towards HE over those for whatever reasons of having other interests or uh, wanting to, and by the way, you know, it, it's possible to invest in further education and higher education at the same time. We're always trapped into, it's a zero sum game. So again, that message is saleable, is it not to the right parts of government? You having worked in Whitehall? Well, I, I would hope so. I mean, you know, I, I've worked in government, as Tony knows, many, many years and many different kinds of politicians. I've retained a perhaps unfulfilled hope for rationality. Um, <laughs> but, you know, you have to, if without that, where, you know, where does it go? So, you know, I think eventually those things do prove to be the case. You know, um, I think the recent spate of announcements are a mixed bag, you know, um, some of the, the four or five you know, vocational qualifications, I don't think anybody could argue that's not in sad need of uh, attention and, and investment. But, you know, so is so is level seven. You know, we're just never going to, there's not, you know, we, they need to sort of, um, and, and completely closing down some of the grants for, you know, creative uh, arts and performing arts. That's, that's just one of UK's biggest, biggest exports. I couldn't agree more with the point that Simon's made. So, so there's, there's, there's lapses of rationality as well as glimmers of it. And I guess, you know, we just have to fan the fires of, uh, of hope where we can find them. And there is the, the issue of acts of commission and acts of omission here, which is very hard to work out which are which. Beth, do you want to contribute on, on this particular subject? Because I've got a question heading straight for you from the questions. But is there anything I don't want to rule you out from talking about this one? Just briefly to say that I think there is a particular opportunity on mobility issues um, for academics with the Office for Talent, which was established last year. We don't really know what that is yet, but it shows an intent on the part of government to put some policy thinking into this. I think from what we understand, it's likely to be a pretty small team. So actually that thinking of the sector, I think there's a real place for that to, to coalesce. Um, Simon's explanation of, of the visa rules is fantastic. But I think we know there are challenges about things like cost. And that's where I think the sector needs to really put its effort on, on making the most of that bandwidth that is there and the signal that we've had. And a science minister who actually is, is very collaborative at the moment. Okay, now there's a question here in the Q&A from John Fairburn at the University of Staffordshire, who says, and I think this is in relation, and it's aimed for you, I think, Beth, at 
um, Switzerland had to set up a parallel scheme. I assume this means to Horizon or something akin to it, where bids first went to a Swiss office and then were put forward to the EU. Not sure if, there was a, if this was a technicality or whether, uh, whether any evaluation was done at, what's at that step. So how will it work in the UK? Can bids go direct to the EU or not? So is there an answer to that question? I'm assuming it's about Horizon as it moves on. Great question. From everything I've heard so far, there are no decisions on how implementation is going to work. So we don't have an answer. But I would certainly urge the government to do it in as streamlined a way as possible and minimise that bureaucracy um, rather than have researchers jump through additional hoops. OK, any other? Simon, when do you want to? Oh, I, Beth is absolutely right. Um, I, there's a lot. The devil is in the detail. There's a lot of things that need to be worked out on Horizon, on our association to Horizon Europe, as there is on Turing. Um, whether or not they have the capacity at the moment to figure out how to, to fill in those details is unclear. I, I agree that I think the onus is on our sector to help the government work this out as, as effectively as possible. I know Welka does a lot of great work in this area, and that's you know I, I, we're all in our various different circles. Uh, coordinating in different ways to do this, so I'm pretty confident they'll find they'll find a way through this that's pretty efficient. I'm hoping we get to a point where it's a sort of one-stop shop application. A UK academic can apply under the current scheme, and and if the grant is awarded, there's just the sign-off from the British government that it will be covered under the scheme. But but the worry, of course, that is is there needs to be some financial constraints on this, and so there's going to have to be some sort of check against a sort of exploding number of UK academics getting granted projects um, that then the UK taxpayer has to cover the cost of. And that, so, so Treasury, I'm sure, is going to be insisting on some sort of check. I think that's, that's, I think that's Wendy, the, go on. Yes, please, please. Oh, please. just a footnote to that point. I think there's a, there's a few references to value for money in some of the announcements around Horizon. I guess that's that's the rabbit hole, you know, that um, we could be sent into uh, multiple and you know, parallel reporting and details. And I guess that's the thing to watch. Now, another Horizon-related question, though, taking us into fascinating territory, which I'm going to broaden out. This is from George Ilyev, who is an LSE alumnus. Um, can the UK initiate a Horizon-style joint research programme with China, given the growing academic power of Chinese universities? Now, I mean, China's a separate interesting issue all in its own right, but let's say China, I'm going to broaden it slightly, China or India, given that the government's off on a trade deal to India soon. Is there any reason why we couldn't begin as a country to keep the EU focused for horizon, but start to do something similar with these large, important countries and blocks elsewhere in the world? I mean, I can go on that because we've been involved in discussions about this discovery fund. So the you know, the, the Discovery Fund was, was was like a British version of Horizon Europe that would fund collabor global collaborations and global talent um, to attract and keep global talent from anywhere in the world. Uh, now, there's an ongoing discussion on exactly this point. OK, so we've associated to Horizon Europe. Um, is it still worth keeping a perhaps smaller Discovery Fund for precisely these sorts of reasons, for, for attracting talent from the US, from China, from India, from, from anywhere in the world, and perhaps bringing them here or, or, or um, uh, un, under this uh, scheme. The problem, of course, is money. And the problem is, you know, <laughs> the envelope is not going to get any bigger. So, so anything that we commit under this fund is going to have to come out of the money that was ring-fenced for, 
for Horizon Europe. So, so I, I think in an ideal world, I'd say yes. But I think in practicality, when we think about where UK public finances are heading, it's going to be very difficult. Simon, unless sort of following the logic of you know global Britain and convincing ministers that in this new world, they would be wise to commit a bit more UK funding to joint UK China or UK Indian or UK you know Brazilian choose your uh, large country with large numbers of students and lots of links research links to the UK I mean surely that's not an impossible looking to ways of convincing governments in their best interest Beth or Wendy would you like to join in on this one yeah I think it's a really interesting question because there's two reasons that the UK might want to partner on a, re- on a research basis with countries like China and India. I think one is that you want to use that research relationship and the UK's strength in research to create a, a diplomatic bond and as a form of soft power. But I think there's also a great reason to do it from a research perspective that they are growing research powers themselves and, it, and therefore that collaboration that we can foster will do good things both for the outputs of research and research in the UK. And I think it's really important that the UK government starts to think about, and actually for the universities in a sense too, to think about what is it that we want from those those kind of partnerships. I see a bit of a risk that as we create more and more trade deals that research could make it added on in places in a kind of ad hoc manner and because it's a nice thing to throw in, but without a real strategic sense of where we're going and which of those questions is it answering? Is it we're doing it to help diplomacy or is it because we're doing it to help research? And I think if we got some more clarity on that strategic question, it would help us on a case by case make decisions. But Simon's right, lots of it will come down to cash at the end of the day. Potentially we have the research budget growing to 22 billion a year, um, which is a big increase. And, and that would be a great way to to absorb some of that increase and to use that in a really constructive way. But we can make those choices and those expensive choices better if we know why we're doing it. And I think there's other countries that we might want to partner with with too. So working out the right ones and doing it strategically is important. Okay. Unless, Wendy, you, you wanted to... Well, I mean, I think it does make sense to, uh, you know, to look at other places. You know, if, if you're looking, you'd, you'd normally want to be joining those who are growing, you know, and, and obviously these countries are the future in terms of, uh, you know, their, uh, the trends and uh, speed with which they are uh, developing. Um, thing is that the trade deals with every one of them has so many facets to it that where, you know, where we'd get in the, you know, in the, in the swings, roundabouts and swaps, you know, it would be hard to, hard to be confident. But, uh, you know, I think the argument could certainly be made that we will benefit, um, you know, more proportionately by uh, getting uh, behind some of the institutions developing research and there's you know I, I was involved a little bit in Indian uh, India health developments and you know they just you know they would come up with some incredibly clever innovations at a fraction of the price that we were thinking of uh, at, when we were doing work in, in medical uh, research in, at, at, at McGill and you know that's that's interesting you know so I think it's worth looking at about whether we, we will feature. I think China's just got a whole bundle of issues with this government that uh, makes it tricky. Well, I mean, it is, there's, a, there's a sort of gentle warning here for HE institutions, aren't there, that the government, a government led by many of similar people was very enthusiastic, enthusiastic about China not that long ago. And now I know everything's changed, but there's been a slight sense of all engines reverse since then, but I'll park that, that's my private thought. 
Um, Bill Guest, this is a, a question which is sort of slightly building on horizon type research question, which is um, with reference to the rights of individual UK institutions to commercialise or participate in the commercialisation of UK and EU jointly funded R&D, are these rights likely to change as a result of Brexit? So it's sort of moving on from science or medicine or indeed social science um, um, research to commercialization. Is that effect, does any, do we know whether that's going to be affected by Brexit? Will it just make commercialization between UK and EU partners more difficult? Do you know that, Beth, Beth Simon? I don't, sorry. I know that there were in early drafts of the Horizon Europe regulation, there were references to commercialization within the EU um, based on that funding. Um, but I have lost track of where that debate got to and where we are in the in the text. Simon, doesn't look you're, you're not you're yeah, not. Yeah, I mean it's it, at me. it, 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 I think there's a question mark here, as Beth said. I don't I, there's a lot of tricky issues here that comes to uh property rights or from research, um intellectual property. Um I don't think that's been sorted out yet. I'm not sure what how that works under other association agreements to Horizon Europe. Uh, plenty of states are associate states, but they're not Association does not mean the same thing. Association means different things for different countries. There's not what, although the idea is to simplify this and have one form of association, I don't think they've quite got there yet. Um, so I'm not sure yet what the IP consequences are for the UK association, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll wait to see that once the, once the deal has been done. Okay. And also related to this, I've got a, a, a question. It's really a, a sharing of thought really, but it's, it, uh, this is from Minha Pham, I hope I pronounced that, who is the science councillor at the French embassy um, and with a contact detail, very kindly. Thank you for that. I'm interested in hearing from LSE uh, that belonging to alliances such as Unica or maybe to the European Universities Project, eight British universities are involved. I think those are the ones you listed, Simon, could help to be creative in terms of creating new ways to help student mobility. The French government is keen to maintain bilateral mobility of students and researchers in science and mobility. And that is an intriguing thought, is it, that whatever the EU and Britain and the EU do, it's possible that 27 member states and Britain uh, might be able collectively to do more. Is that true, Simon? Uh, I mean, I'm happy to go for that. I'm sure Wendy also has... has Wendy, and I'll come to Wendy. Um, On for Wendy coming up. As, as I said... I think there was an instrumental reason for us um, to want to be part of Civica and it was related to the framework it gave us, made it much easier for us to build up exchange programs, dual degree programs, double degree programs with these partners. We could have done it anyway um, without this, this initiative. We could you know, do the one by one bilateral agreements, but it just is much easier within a framework to, to, to provide resources to support that, to provide a timeline to deliver it, to sort of bring things together all at the same time, undergraduate exchange programs, under, joint undergraduate degree programs, joint master's degree programs, joint PhD programs and PhD. You know, we have a framework which we're hoping to get from where we are now to somewhere very different in four or five years from now, which will be a much richer network of connections between us. And if we do have that, this kind of exchanges for our students and our faculty and our professional services staff within this network. So 
So I agree. I think we don't see this as contradictory with us also building up global exchanges, um, but we think it will help us accelerate exactly those types of exchanges that Minha Pham talks about there. And Wendy, you mentioned your Paris um, office or campus. Um, sounds like a, a, a obviously a, a, an existing interest by the French government, but I mean, but French government as the French government. But what about the university and France and other EU countries individually? Is this something you're giving thoughts to? Well, we're certainly getting, uh, you know, more, more than thought. Some some uh, programs exist already that are. Uh, as I say, you know, Queen Mary, uh, Kings have m partnership agreements with us that are offering programs to uh, uh, to students in Paris. Um, some of them are EU students. Some of them are uh, British students who want to have the experience of living uh, in Paris to to study. Uh, so it's it's possible, um, but to you know to get it into the multilateral uh, scale is you know is I think much more interesting you know as as time goes on you just get get much more um well you, students are being given much more opportunities and we you know we have a, a some under uh, undertakings and agreements with uh, several universities within paris um uh, and you know we would we would hope that those could be built on you know a lot of the questions that we're still kind of asking today, you know, need to be worked out before we can be absolutely confident how that will develop. But it, you know, I think there's definitely interest and, you know, our experience of, uh, of the diplomatic, uh, you know, presence in, in uh, Paris is uh, they're really, really wanting this, you know, really wanting to maintain those relationships and, and develop them. So, you know, I, I'm optimistic. And, you know, we do have parallel degrees and, you know, mutual degrees, you know, pathways back to UK campuses from countries all over the world. So, you know, those models, I would think uh, have been developed without the framework of the EU and, and may provide some ideas of how to do it uh, now that we don't have the EU's kind of structures to rely on. And at a risk of a kind of an ignorant sounding question, and either you or Simon or Beth might know the answer to this, are kind of what you might call barter deals between countries of numbers of students going each way each year a legitimate way of doing this kind of thing? I mean, you know, X numbers from British students to France, next number of French students to Britain. Is that something that doesn't get tangled in some sort of rules or other? As a way of getting around the different... Do you want to go? It tends to be at the university level rather than the national level. It's very, very difficult to track at the national level. Um, and this is part of, I think, a, a basket of tricky issues, which okay. Wendy alluded to when she said there's a, you know, there's a, the administrative burden of running these schemes is absolutely massive. Um, Erasmus made that much easier because it was a sort of one size fits all. You take it off the shelf. This is what you did. Whereas, you know, or any agreement we have has to be a bilateral agreement between University A and University B, and they're all unique, and they're all very particular, and, and they all allow, and you have to kind of police. It's almost impossible to do anything other than that. I don't know about Wendy's experience, but that's clearinghouse though for these kind of schemes, so that more institutions can take part. Is that Wendy? Could you could you not do this for your? You're muted, Wendy. Various Sorry. London. Thank you, Simon. I mean, well, in the past, you know, the, these these sorts of schemes of uh, student mobility, picking and choosing, you know, programs, 
elements from across the University of London, those were done, you know, and, and it's possible to do them. Um, and it could be done uh, on a, a, a inter-university uh, basis or multi-university basis in, in uh, Europe. What I, being still slightly new to the sector, I'll say though that the universities have to have a corporate capacity to make decisions. <laughs> You know, um, you know, and, and I, I, not that we, you know, and that sometimes is tricky, you know, because programs have their own proprietary nature of the specialness of them and uh, what credits are going to be re mutually recognized and which students are going to get in and how it's going to, you know, how, the, how they're going to follow a pathway. These are decisions that we find even within our own institutions, sometimes um, labor intensive and time consuming. So once you get it on an inter-university level and a multidiscipline level, you know, I would, I just, we're just going to have to get much uh, more streamlined about it, I could guess it would be my view. I mean, at McGill, it used to drive us, uh, it was quite tricky um, because, you know, the law faculty, music, they all had their own special ways and uh, to kind of make those capable of entering into a, you know, a single agreement, um, you know, across many programs, you know, was, it, it was done, but it was tricky. Okay, I'm going to move on to another question from Astrid Favella, who is uh, an, a student at the University of Oxford and an LSE alumna. It's aimed at Simon Hicks, but I think I will ask the other two of my panellists to comment on this too. Um, do you think that negotiation for proceeding with a cherry-picking approach, now the deal is done, may be facilitated by the fact that education as a field with higher education is regarded as a soft power. And this term has come up several times this evening, really all three speakers have mentioned it. May this also be the reason why it's been neglected in the deal? So I think it's interesting because this, the idea of science, higher education, social science as a UK soft power, um, a really strong part of UK soft power is not what, going to be one I suspect that the foreign office uh, would require much convincing of. So looking ahead, do you think that now the things, you know, the, the final January the 1st is passed, that extending UK soft power in this way is going to be easier, particularly selling it as soft power? Maybe. I mean, on the one hand, you could say that a lot of our service sectors have an element of soft power to them. I mean, education is surely one, but wouldn't you make the same argument about film, fashion, media, theatre, I think it could apply to them. I think that's Astrid's question. The point I mean, I think it applies to all of them. But hold on, Tony. So, sorry. I, I think part of there's two reasons why I, don't, I think these sectors were not thought about as part of the deal. One is these sectors weren't really in parts of the country or employing people who voted for Brexit. Um, so, you know, these are very concentrated in the southeast of England, very global, very European, very high skill, high talented. It's you know, industri industrial sectors in the north, the fisheries industry, you know, these were the sectors that were driving Brexit. So, of course, they had the attention of the government. Secondly, services sectors don't fit very neatly into a trade deal. Trade deals mainly cover good sectors, industrial sectors, um, tariffs, quotas, rules and regulations, product standards and so on. Very, very limited services sector provisions in any global trade deal. So, so I think the attitude of the government was, you guys have a, you know, you can figure out services sector yourself. You can figure out mutual recognition or develop these agreements bilaterally, multilaterally. Just get on with it yourself. And I'm, in a sense, I'm quite sympathetic to that. Yeah, but um, 
surely uh, science and medicine, higher education more generally, is interestingly one of the sectors that is spread out across the United Kingdom, including in the Red Wall areas, Liverpool, Manchester, uh, Leeds. I mean, these are actually now slightly seen as more like London than they once were, but there are, uh, uh, and Edinburgh and Birmingham. So in a sense, soft power from a network of UK universities doesn't sound to me like something necessarily anti-leveling up. I mean, Beth, does that make sense to you? You must be funding institutions throughout the UK, I'm guessing. We do, and I think we've seen that there's there's institutions across the whole of the UK that make a really valuable contribution to HE and, and to the research environment more broadly. We know that the government are thinking hard about levelling up and what that means for research and this idea of a, a play strategy. Um, so I, it is something that's of, of national importance, um, and it will be critical to make sure that we can we can deliver that because we know that there's more value to be had from research than we're currently getting whether that means that we have more potential um, to do this kind of uh, sector deal carve outs that that as follow-ups to the to the main deal um, I'm not sure I think there's a challenge there but I do think the sector should work really proactively to look at where can we solve problems either domestically or through more informal arrangements. And then as a last resort, if we do need to pin something down as as that level of international agreement, let's put heads together and work out what that is and and put proposals together because it can't hurt to ask. Can I ask Beth a question? Yeah, of course, please. Which is one of the things that, you know, concerns me uh, um, is a potential conflict between the sort of place-based slash leveling up agenda and the research quality excellence agenda. Now, I know there's a lot of colleagues in the rest of the country will say that's not fair, we're all excellent. I don't doubt that, that's true. Except there is a concentration of top quality, top class research institutions in the south east of England. And we have had it. I've had experience recently of, you know, grant proposals being turned down by UKRI or other funders where all the reviewers have said this is absolutely outstanding. It's world class. It really should be funded. And then at the last minute, they decide not to fund it. And I suspect it's because it's a London based project of London based faculty, even if it's collaboration with Imperial or UCL or whatever. And so I do what you know, whereas I'm rolling back three, four years ago, this is the type of thing that would have been funded. So, so, you know, if we go, if we, is there a contradiction between a kind of place-based levelling up? I think there isn't a contradiction if all of us actually are moving up. There's a contradiction if, if there's a limited set of resources and we have to make choices. Then I think it's concerning for, for the globally, the general global competitiveness of British higher education. Do you want to comment on that, Beth? I mean, because I've got one, a linked question for Wendy in a second, which actually takes us into the heart of this issue. Let me do it briefly because I can't solve that dilemma for the government. But I think you're right. The important thing is about raising all the boats on the tide. It's not about levelling some up and and levelling some down and kind of meeting in the middle. And I think we have to be creative about the way that the the UK finds to to do levelling up. And not all of it is going to be about basic research. Some of it might be about how we link um, R&D to manufacturing 
better, for example, and do there's some great examples in Sheffield where we've seen investment from industry um, and, and government investment come together to do really creative things that then create jobs. So I think it's not as I, I think it's not as simple a question of, of how do we balance out or spread around basic research funding more. I mean, you know, I can just say, I mean, as ever, there's always the risk, and I'm, you're, you're right, Simon, that all these things are seen as, seen as zero-sum games. There's a rather interesting article by Martin Wolf in the Financial Times today about the need to have all parts of the UK functioning. And I do see in this debate always the slight risk of that we'll accidentally end up levelling down rather than levelling up, which is always kind of, kind of conceptual, well, not conceptually, but actually easier in policy terms. But as one of the things it points to, and this is why I'm going to turn to Wendy for another question, is linking, you know, further education and universities of different kinds in different parts of the country into networks that convinces the government that there is a cascade of ideas and the possibility of a cascade of people up and down or within them, uh, I should say within them, uh, is a possibility. But I'm going to go to Lucy Parker's question here. Um, who's another LSE alumnus, I'm uh, not only choosing them today, but there are a lot of them, which is good. So Lucy asks, the speakers have talked about HE building more alliances outside of HE with government, with other sectors, creative industries, etc. Can you feasibly see a massive growth in UK universities' civic agendas? And is the UK HE sector well-placed? Does it have the appetite and resources to develop into a more impact, impactful civic universities? I do think that links to the issue we've just been discussing. And Wendy, I know, is in the middle of an initiative precisely to do that. Wendy. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Tony. Well, you know, I think uh, this is an agenda that we in London need to be firmly on. Um, I, and I think sometimes because of the global nature and excellence of the institutions, uh, within London it's and the complexity of London's governance you know it's it's always been tricky to engage in the civic agenda but I think it's absolutely critical because if there is a simple kind of political um, approach to uh, you know these, this sort of um, uh, settling you know uh, up uh, agenda you know it will end up undermining the you know the absolute world-class nature of uh, of the research that is funded I mean there is great research all over the country but it doesn't all have to be the same you know there I mean it's taken generations to get these centers of excellence where we have them and to not build on that you know strikes me as uh, as kind of nation limiting so the civic agenda is is key you know and here in London uh, it is complex there's a lot of us and uh, there's a lot of complex institutions but you know there is huge uh, importance at this point that we don't uh, that London doesn't get overlooked it is at a serious uh, state uh, in the uh, you know given the post-COVID uh, recovery challenge that it's going to face you know this, the position on the financial services we've touched on I mean that's the heart of London uh, and unless there's some greater certainty uh, about that uh, sector I think London is in peril and, you know, Tony will know this, you know, I mean, I used to run Noom Council. So for me, you know, if you add up all the poor people in London, uh, they will soon rival the number of disadvantaged people in the rest of the country. You know, we, there is serious and profound disadvantage in London uh, in all realms, but in, in economic and educational terms as well. So so I think it's really uh, something that I'm putting uh, our efforts into at the University of London across our member institutions. Uh, but I know that it will be also true of, other, of the wider uh, HE sector. 
you know, we're working with uh, the Greater London Authority now on, on, the, on the plans for recovery. Um, it's, you know, you think just any issue you want to touch, youth, youth employment, labour market change, you know, this is one where the universities really will have an opportunity to make uh, an important difference. And I, I would also maybe just mention that, you know, what, I, I've come from uh, one of the regions uh, just immediately bet between Montreal and London. I was in Norfolk and, uh, you know, the university there, UEA, I mean, it is fiercely tied into the civic agenda. And when, you know, when we used to go to bat in, um, in Whitehall for uh, whatever we were after that particular moment, um, you know, we... You know, we, we fought like a pack, you know, and and the university was firmly on side. And if you look at some of the research facilities that exist around Norwich, as a result, you can see the payback. Uh, and I'd like to see us, um, continue, you know, doing that in the interests of the nation and, and of, of, of London itself. I do think, this is one Simon, yes, you've been visiting other parts of the UK in your role, haven't you? And Yes, yeah, I have. And also, also uh, the US. Um, and I very much agree with Wendy on that. And I, I've spoken to you, Tony, about this at LSE. I, I saw a very good presentation about the University of Chicago and what they do in Chicago in terms of their civic agenda. And they see it both in terms of outreach to schools to help schools upgrade what they're doing in education. They see it in terms of their undergraduate education and providing students wanting, getting their students involved in local civic projects. Um, and they see it in terms of their research agenda and part of their research agenda addressing local issues. And I remember, you know, being frustrated a few years ago, Tony, when I was in the School of Public Policy and seeing all the students present their ideas for their for their projects that they were going to do as part of their masters in public administration. And, and I remember a British student coming and talking about a project that they were going to do about homelessness in some in, in a town in Latin America. And I said, why is, not, why is nobody wanting to do a project on homelessness in London? And, and it, it's just not sexy. It's, you know, we, it was ridiculous in a way. Here we are, a global social science institution, and very little of what we do is actually targeted towards some of the major social and policy challenges we face in our city that's right on our doorstep. So it's, it, it, I absolutely agree with Wendy, and I think we really need to be doing more as universities, um, both in terms of our teaching and in terms of our student volunteering and in terms of our own research agenda. Beth, do you have any thoughts on this one? I mean, I realise that uh, you're a national institution, an international institution, but... Um... Just to echo the role that I think universities can play in their local area and, and this idea that research is not of more value just because it's of, of global relevance. I think locally relevant research is so important and we have to make sure that we have an incentive framework that also promotes that. So I think yes to universities playing a more civic role, but also looking at our policy and, uh, and incentive structures and making sure that we, we value those things. Okay, I'm going to, we're running up to 6.30. So Wendy, Beth, Simon, any, anything that you felt during the evening you should have said, uh, uh, or you, you'd like to get across in the last two minutes before I just apologize to the one or two people who haven't got their questions in this evening, but I want to finish on time. Wendy, any final thought? Well, you know, just really uh, grateful to uh, the LSE for hosting this event. You know, I think it's really important. We've got to, is, it is now the moment to move on. And because this agreement's been concluded in a sort of big rush and pretty thinly, you know, there's a sort of sense in which it, this agenda can fall off uh, 
fall off the radar. And I really feel just from this discussion today, you can see how important it is that we, we get it back up there and we get HE in the center of it. And Beth? Yes, I think there's an opportunity to be seized and it may not be where the sector would have chosen to be, but it's where we are. I think there is an opportunity there to grasp and actually forgetting uh, the past and the grieving, as Wendy said, and being constructive partners with government, making the case forcefully and, and putting it out there, but being collaborative um, and helping them find the solutions in a constructive way will be really important to take us forward. Simon? Yeah, I guess what I find interesting about these debates about Brexit is you can say we could have tackled the place-based agenda. We could have talked about global alliances while we were a member state of the EU, but we didn't. Um, and so what I, what I welcome as part of the Brexit process is that we're having these debates now about the role of universities, the levelling up agenda, the global global Britain and Britain's services sectors in the world. So, so in a sense, if Brexit has forced us to actually confront those sorts of policy challenges, I think that's potentially a good thing for higher education. Okay, thank you for that too. And I, I apologise to Janet Ward at Harriet Watt, Maria Sino at UCL, Fernando, Fernando Herrero at Birkbeck, Casey Bernard in Frankfurt, Alexander Gregor at the University of Portsmouth and one or two others who I haven't been able to list there. So I'm sorry we didn't get to your uh, questions. Uh, just to conclude, what I think is really interesting about this discussion is that there's a sort of strong sense that, as Tony Blair used to say, we are where we are, and that, uh, you know, we can all think about how things might have been different or better or worse, but that we are here. And so the question of how to uh, convince the UK government and UK opposition, by the way, that... Um, it's in their interest that some things are now done because it's not only in their interest, but it's in the interest of, you know, people across the UK and across the world. Actually, when you put it like that, not that difficult. Uh, and we just need to kind of apply ourselves a little bit more perhaps to thinking about, uh, you know, getting ideas across the government that suit us and suit them. Um, uh, I should just thank Rosie and Antigone and others behind the scenes, Kevin Featherstone, who was waiting just in case my line dropped out, which it didn't. Um, uh, so thank all my panel, Wendy, Beth and um, Simon and Cece.